0: People of all political stripes have long used pop music to define what it means to be American. Sometimes the songs are just lighthearted summer jams, like this one from Miley Cyrus, Party in the USA. But other times these musical arguments are serious. For example, when Jay-Z raps about selling drugs in order to pursue the American dream, he's also critiquing how race and class exclusion left his family behind.
1: This is the Star Banner.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is with good reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today we're tracing political and social change through popular music, from party anthems Mary. to protest songs.
2: Sweet Father Joseph. Sweet Jesus We made it in America
0: And later on the show, tracing America's democratic identity through music, both during Sweet the early baby. days of the Republic and today.
3: What kind of music are we as a democratic society going to produce that can help us identify
0: ourselves as a nation? But first, Charlie McGovern argues that American popular music has always been fiercely political. McGovern is a professor of American Studies at William & Mary. His forthcoming book is Body and Soul, Race, Citizenship, and Popular Music, 1930-1977. to Charlie, as you're looking into popular music after World War II, are you finding a lot of it is patriotic music?
4: Well, the war made so many people conscious of both the fragility of the nation and its strength. And as the war gave way to uh, the years after when the Cold War, uh, of course, became the dominant policy and civil rights and other movements for social change came to national prominence, All of that was expressed in the music. People loved this country, and they wanted this country to be better. So
0: what sorts of American ideals were people singing about? Were these mostly white songs?
4: Oh, no. This was a, 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 a great conversation, if you will, so that people meant different things by freedom. They meant different things by equality. They meant different things by what it meant to belong, to be a full person, to have respect.
0: So take me through a few of the songs that show how World War II was a player in this story, where people were singing about patriotism or American ideals or what it is to be American.
4: Sure. The pop music of the time tell stories about people parted, absent lovers. And my favorite of all of these songs is by Glenn Miller and the Army Air Force Band. And it's a song called Good Night Wherever You Are. Wherever you are. May your dreams be pleasant dreams wherever you are. If only one little wish that I wish comes true. The song could be about anybody, anywhere, except that, in that at the very end, Johnny Desmond, the, the great vocalist, sings, with all my heart, I pray everything is all right. The song is both, in that sense, uh, talking, you know, communicating to that loved one who is in danger, but a prayer for their safety.
0: So what year was this? This was during World War II. This
4: was. This was in 1944. While these kinds of songs, these romantic ballads of absent lovers, were the most prominent, if you looked over toward the sides or, or if you will, off of that uh, mainstream, you found folks in country music, as it was coming to be called, and folks in blues music who were often much more direct, in their patriotic sentiments. And a fabulous example of this is uh, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, and they did this fabulous song called Smoke on the Water in which the singer Tommy Duncan, you know, calls out the Axis dictators by name and threatens them that the United States is going to not just defeat the Axis, but in in effect, burn it to the ground. (laughs) There will be a sad day coming For the foes of all mankind They must answer to the people And it's troubling their minds Everybody who must fear them Will rejoice on that great day When the powers of dictators Shall be taken all away There'll be smoke on the water On the land and the sea When our army
1: and navy Takes the enemy. There'll be smoke on the mountains where the gods stay. and the
4: sun that is shining will go down on that day. It wasn't as if the idea of smoke on the water, that you're with us or against us, uh, was pervasive. There was a great deal of questions raised by the war about how are we as a society, united in war, but divided in so many other things. How are we gonna live together? And after the war, pundits, politicians, and artists all were very concerned with what used to be called tolerance or uh, belonging. And Frank Sinatra, who had just become the, the most popular singer in America, devoted uh, a lot of his time as a young artist to doing work for uh, racial and ethnic tolerance and one of the, the cornerstones of his efforts was his uh, song The House I Live In.
2: What is America to me A name A map Or a flag I see A certain word democracy What is America to me
0: The house I live in A plot of earth A street The grocer
2: and the butcher And the people that I meet the children in the playground. The faces that I see. All races and religions. That's America to me.
0: So what about African-American singers at this time? Were they also singing patriotic songs during this period?
4: African-Americans' patriotism has always been on display but because their experience has been so horrific living as enslaved people african-american singers often called for even demanded respect brotherhood solidarity and especially a place for them and there was nobody who who did that better than Nat king cole and This song from 1952 called My Brother is a fabulous example. My brother is a guy, an ordinary guy, who gets along with all his fellow creatures. My brother makes the claim, folks are pretty much... The same, $50 seats are in the bleachers, my brother doesn't ask what church you may prefer, what friends you have or who you get your mail from, he doesn't want to know how much money you can show. Of what side of the railroad track you hail from? He's always understood. It's interesting. It's so
0: beautiful, but it's also a very subtle message. We're yes. all one, right?
4: Yes, yes. But by the early 1960s, African Americans were getting more and more impatient. And Lena Horn, you know, pin-up idol of... Black and white soldiers during World War II, she comes out with a song called Now. It's one of the most powerful civil rights songs that ever appeared on a Pop 45.
0: But it did not sound like a censorable song to me. She's just saying, let's get action now. She's not calling for violence. So why was this song disturbing to black and white radio
4: stations? It was disturbing, I think, because by saying now, she was putting the lie to the politeness that still surrounded political discourse. And this is Lena Horne. When she gets angry... And she says now, people have to pay attention. The Drifters performed a song called Up in the Streets of Harlem, which made that story of activism and activism now, brought it down to the local and to the personal level. And this song is about, of course, Harlem in New York, but because Harlem was often a code word for black communities everywhere, the song spoke to black folk in all of their situations. Up in the streets
3: of Harlem, Harlem, 100th, 25th, they say we always swing there, what a lie, what a myth, and I'm
0: What is he saying? I'm going to leave and help out?
4: Right. And he can no longer put up with the expectations of the white world that black folk like him just sort of grin and bear it. And so he's leaving. And if you listen to the lyrics closely, he's not going to the Vietnam War. He's going to join the movement. So he's leaving the streets of Harlem to go work for a better racial world. As the 60s progressed, there are riots and uprisings Uh, violence, destruction, and the poverty has not gone away. By 1968, the United States is on fire. The time for restraint had passed. And Curtis Mayfield and his group, The Impressions, Curtis says that, that being enslaved and working for freedom has made black Americans just as important and just as entitled as anyone else. And so that's what's going on, and this is my country.
2: Too many have died in protecting my pride For me to go second class We've survived the hard blow And I want you to know That you'll face us at last And I
4: know Boy, you, you will give consideration, consideration. Shall we perish unjust or live equal as a nation? This is my
2: country.
4: This song is so infectious, it is uplifting, even as they are telling us a really, really hard truth that in 1968, most white Americans were still not dealing with. The idea that the United States was perfect and the idea that the United States was a work in progress have always been intentional. And it's that debate over patriotism that we still face today. What is different from the World War II era or the 1950s and 60s is that we have so many more people now that are not going to put up with the built-in racism in our country. There's a reason why people remember Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come uh, and celebrate Sam Cooke and Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles today because their music not just crossed over into audiences, uh, but their music inspired people along with, you know, others like Nina Simone to make change and it sustained them when things weren't going well.
0: Charlie McGovern, this is fascinating. Thank you for sharing this on With Good Reason.
4: Thank you, Sarah.
0: Charlie McGovern is a professor of American Studies at William & Mary. His forthcoming book is Body and Soul, Race, Citizenship, and Popular Music, 1930-1977. to Coming up next, how today's streaming services are changing how we view music, and perhaps the very idea of democracy. My next guest is Nancy Hanrahan, a professor of sociology at George Mason University. Before becoming an academic, She spent 10 years in the music business in New York City. Now she studies the sociology of music. She argues the American ideas of democracy and citizenship are interwoven with how we experience music, from orchestral performance to digital streaming. Nancy, so people have been debating the notion of how music furthers democracy or is representative of our democratic ideals for a long time, When did you first see that emerge in American culture?
3: It goes back to the 1830s. At that time, the concern with democracy was a way of distinguishing the culture of these United States from the elite and aristocratic cultures of Europe. I mean, de Tocqueville asked this question in Democracy in America, and it was a beautiful uh, statement. He said, what kind of culture would an egalitarian society produce? Because up until that point, culture, and I'm using that word in quotes, was really associated with aristocratic or elites in society. It became a subject of quite fierce debate in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, you know, really all through the 19th century. And the question there was, what kind of music are we as a democratic society going to produce that can help us identify ourselves as a nation. So the debate is really caught up with this whole question about national identity. It's later also caught up with the question about morality, shared values, right? And the idea that somehow a music that is authentically American would express those shared values and would help to unite and identify
0: the nation. So what music did we identify as uniquely American, let's say, in the 1800s?
3: There were, of course, many different camps for this this debate. Uh, Some people, for instance, uh, John Sullivan Dwight, who represented the sort of Bostonian view, suggested that democracy in music was making the best European classical music available to the largest number of people other people like william henry fry who was based in new york felt that american music had to be different and many of the ways in which it was different is was there was a lot of experimentation between european classical forms and what were considered more popular american forms like the singing families of the hutchinsons and the Cheneys. so it was a but if you if you if you actually put those music side by side the sort of bel canto tradition And the singing families were using a lot of the same material. There wasn't quite that separation between what we consider to be high culture and popular culture at that time. This idea of sort of mixing the classical and the popular, one of the exemplars of that was the opera singer Jenny Lind, who was Swedish, who gave a concert tour from 1850 to 1852 in the United States. And if you look at the press at the time people were claiming that this was an example of democratic culture and democratic music in action because she sang in english which was unusual at that time and also because the the actual songs the bel canto songs that she was singing were sort of adjusted to a more popular audience. She would add certain repetitions to sort of heighten, you know, the sort of drama or the affect of a particular section of the of the song. Uh, the climaxes were also heightened and extended. So there was a sense that this was a merging of the popular and the classical, you know, the European and the American.
0: But it's interesting. It sounds like in a way it's considered dumbing down the song a bit to appeal to the more unknowledgeable masses?
3: That is certainly how we would interpret it in a contemporary discourse. But that wasn't what was being said at the time. And I think it's because popular and what we would consider high art cultural forms, you know, were being enjoyed by virtually everybody. I mean, everybody went to opera. Everybody went to Shakespeare plays. You know, it wasn't until much later in the 19th century, toward the end of the 19th century, that the notion that we have of high culture actually emerges.
0: So what happened at the turn of the century? As we saw the advent of radio, phonographs, were these new technologies considered the democratizing of music also?
3: Yes, and it's actually an important touch point in terms of comparison with the contemporary discourse about democratization because when we think about that now with digital technologies we're thinking in terms of technological affordances you know people have access they can listen to whatever they want there's a you know multitude of possibilities out there that's a very different conception of what democracy means with respect to music than certainly it was in the 19th century the idea was that through radio and the sort of major broadcasters that this would unify the nation because everyone is listening to the same thing.
0: Huh. So it's more a cultural democracy. It's like later we talked about the three major networks. We're all watching one of them. Mm
3: -hmm. That's right. So the notion of democracy is still tied to a very strong sense of the nature of some social and political collective. Democratization means bringing everyone into the framework of these democratic, quote, unquote,
0: media. Was the debate about music and democracy in the early 20th century also about, look, we can bring you any kind of music from any corner of the country so we can all hear Appalachian music or country or um, high music, high art music? The debate was raging,
3: okay? So, you know, some people actually felt just the opposite, because before the major networks, before radio is as widespread and available as it became, radio was like people sitting around with little short waves and, you know, trying to reach each other. And, uh, you know, it was a very individual and very local product. There might be a, a small station someplace that's broadcasting within a very, very, very small range. So one side of the debate is isn't this fabulous this is democracy in action this is this is national unity this is a shared culture shared morality very much drawing from the 19th century discourse you know and on the other hand many people were saying that this is industry consolidation and it's going to obliterate local cultures
0: so this is another debate over democracy and music the proponents of digital music would say any of us can get anything we want. It's right at our fingertips. We have freedom of choice. Yes. But...
3: They say that. <laughs>
0: right. What's the counterargument?
3: Well, you know, I think it's less of um, a argument about democratization than it is, you know, to kind of really explore how different the meaning of that word is. We can talk about democracy as essentially something that is technical. Again, you know, access, choice... But none of that actually speaks to the kinds of questions that were being raised in the 19th and early 20th centuries, which is really about the content of American democracy and what that means. So it's it's almost as though we've shifted or the discourse has shifted from, you know, who are we as a democracy? What does that mean for the production of culture? in this country? You know, how do we distinguish ourselves from the Europeans? How do we stake out new territory, you know, as a new nation? You know, and there are 20th century versions of that also, certainly questions around African-American music and around jazz, the civil rights movement. Those are also questions about democracy. But when we talk about digital technologies democratizing culture, none of that is being invoked. In fact, it's it's quite the opposite because these technologies are advertised and, in fact, do provide a fairly personalized experience. The idea that some, that democracy is something that is, it's not just about individual freedom, it's not just about individual choice, you know, it's about something collective, uh, is is really lost.
0: You interviewed some young people about what they listen to and how they get their music. What did you sort of broadly find? with how satisfied these young people were with their digital music choices.
3: People feel a great deal of frustration with the streaming services and what they're able to discover. People are able to get something new or hear something new, but not really new. <laughs> you know, they get hear something that's a little bit different from what they've heard before in the sense that it's not exactly the same song. But one level of frustration is that People don't really feel that, even though all this music is out there, that they really are able to access it because there is so much out there. People need help navigating all the possibilities. So they rely on the streaming services and, you know, to some extent also their social networks. But what is technically available isn't necessarily audible because if the, mo- if the song isn't absolutely right, next, next, skip, skip, skip. Skipping rates are astronomical.
0: It's so interesting. So we're choosing our music like we choose Tinder dates, right? right. Swipe, swipe, swipe. Swipe, yes. swipe, swipe.
3: Exactly. I think that's where the debate is with respect to the digital technologies. At this point, it's it's, it's about the market. Is this a question about democracy in any real sense? I, I don't I don't hear that. I really don't hear it.
0: Nancy Hanrahan, thank you for talking with me on with good reason.
3: It's really been such a pleasure,
0: Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. On.
1: Don't even
0: gotta try. Nancy Hanrahan is a professor of sociology at George Mason University. Her current research project is called Music and Democracy, which explores two centuries of discourse about popular music in the United States. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. Music is a political force. Across the world, it's an integral part of how cultures and communities tell their stories. But in sub-Saharan Africa, some important music recordings have been buried away in old colonial archives. Noel Lobley, a former radio DJ, wants to unbury them. Lobley's an ethnomusicologist at the University of Virginia, He works with South African musicians to bring field recordings of traditional music to the people, even if that means turning donkey carts into DJ stands. Noel, when did you first fall in love with African music?
2: Um, I was working uh, as a professional DJ in clubs and on radio um, decades ago and um, in 2001 I think a friend of mine, an anthropologist invited me to go uh, and join him and travel and live in Kenya for three months. It was my introduction to anthropology, how you hang out with people, how you work with um, with cultures and the natural musician in me started to apply that to music and, and, and following a lot of music locally throughout Kenya. The mix of tradition and modern, how it was everywhere how in the smallest, tiniest churches it would be blasting out on the streets you'd hear like hip-hop Pop music being played in situations you wouldn't expect it, like elder communities listening to it, and it's it just felt um, it felt like it had a special place to me.
0: So what happened after Kenya? You went back to London, sort of a changed man.
2: Yeah, came back um, determined to work with, to study African music, to find out what was underneath it. Uh, I studied ethnomusicology back at the University of Oxford in England. So during this time, so I, I knew African music, I knew world music from the more produced side of things. You know what we hear on radio, what's on record labels, but I became aware of these field recordings, um, these like snapshots, moments that are recorded in context, music. In, in, the, in the place where it's actually made rather than overproduced in a studio.
0: Field recordings by whom?
2: Field recordings by different collectors, anthropologists, private collectors. Um, the, the the one that really turned my ear and head was a collection uh, recordings made by Hugh Tracy, who was an English collector um, pioneer collector ethnomusicologist who in the 1920s moved to uh, southern rhodesia as was and fell in love with the local music making and devoted the rest of his life to trying to record all of the <laughs> all of the music making of sub-saharan africa so he established the international library of african music 30 40000 recordings 200 language groups 18 countries so that's an archive now it's a teaching institution um, but when i was first introduced to it, I could only find little tiny fragments online.
0: Give me an example of an early fragment you found that just thrilled you.
2: One that stayed with me, stood out so strongly in these early days of listening, was um, a recording of a Laziba mouthbow played by shepherd Boys in Lesotho. We'll listen to a short fragment here. <laughs> ¶¶ so what you're hearing there the laziba is uh, a mouth bow uh, it's a stringed instrument that you blow rather than pluck so the the main musician you can hear is uh, vibrating a vulture quill in his mouth and with just sheer skill is able to pull out a fundamental note, a main note and a whole series of kind of scorched overtones. You can also hear whistling and the expression happens that the kind of the grumblings and, 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 and the mumblings they all happen at the same time as playing the instrument. It's aesthetically stunning, but it's to communicate with animals, it's to communicate with space, it's it's very much of a place. It's also, it features on the national radio in Lesotho as well, as part of the, uh, I think it's just before the news or so. so it's kind of got an iconic symbol. When I first started hearing these sounds online, I, I responded purely as a DJ and artist to the sound, the quality of the sound. To me, it sounded like acid house music, you know, which I, I grew up on. Distinctive sound in Acid House is distorting uh, a baseline. a machine that distorts a baseline and it makes this whole... It, it, it's been described as squelchy. It's, uh, the acidic sound is this kind of coruscated and scorching sound that uh, it just electrifies clubs. <laughs> Having grown up on that uh, and been involved with that scene, I had the same reaction um, to uh, what I could hear in the Laziba here. I'm not saying the traditions have influenced each other, but sonically there's something... Uh, connected there, I think.
0: After you became so moved by the archival sounds from African music that you found, you went back to Africa. Tell me about the experience you had with a donkey cart and cassettes.
2: Sure, so it struck me that um, this wonderful collection was unknown outside of academic circles, and it mapped history amongst 200 different communities in South Africa. It was recorded at a time when music and culture was hugely changing, this kind of rural to urban migration that was happening, people going to work on mines, so it was massive social, cultural upheaval and change. It's supposed to be a moment of celebration of indigenous um, music and culture. So what interested me was working with local artists, local black South African artists, and whether this record would mean anything to them. And I was lucky enough to meet Nyakon Tsana a professional musician and, and choreographer dancer who, who, when I met him, was teaching kids to, to dance hip hop. Um, and Kholile Limadinda a hip hop artist and rapper, I said, do you want to come and hear this archive? And they're like, yeah. And we came in, we listened to it together, and we started to map a project together. So some recordings are like, yeah, this is our anthem. We still all sing this today. And it was recorded in the 50s. Um, it was surprising to them to know that that record existed. And then as we went over time, we kind of drew out recordings that we thought might be of interest to people. But it was these were locked up in an archive and they, they opened my eyes to methods that could expose the recordings in the townships to local communities. So they're like, if you want to get these things heard, hire a donkey cart. We'll travel around uh, singing the songs on the donkey cart. We'll set up a PA system and we'll DJ them. We'll DJ the old recordings. We'll DJ house and ragga and hip hop. We'll do performance and people will come. And so we did. And they did come.
0: How many communities did you visit?
2: probably dozens of different townships in surrounding areas. We got responses from hundreds and hundreds of people.
0: And tell me, you were playing old songs or you are playing new songs?
2: We were playing recordings from the Hugh Tracy collection. The ones we were using were all recording amongst Xhosa communities, X-H-O-S-A, in the 1950s. And we were playing those to contemporary Xhosa communities um, today.
0: Give me an example of one that really excited some of these communities to hear again.
2: This is Somagwaza. This is actually recorded in Mpondo Land, a community in the Eastern Cape, South Africa. So Somagwaza. When I was going through the collection with Nyaki and Kholile, Yaki was like, yo, yeah, this is our national anthem. Everyone knows this song. We sing this. And he told me what it was, how it was used. What he was surprised him was that it had been recorded 50 years earlier or 60 years earlier. Um, he's like, people want to hear this. They want to hear this. So it became one of the selection of songs that we started to share with people. And it was the one that was most well known. It was still performed a lot today. But what was fascinating about it is that Hugh Tracy writes a couple of lines in a catalogue about it's a praise song for the chief after he slaughtered a cattle. So that's what Hugh Tracy would have been told by someone. And it across time and in different communities, it means so many different things. The debates, the different perspectives on, on what somaguaza was as a song, what it meant to people was utterly fascinating.
0: What does that word
2: mean? So somagwa- Well, this is it. Samaguaza <laughs> is something like father of the stabbing, father of the cutting, something like that. Um, it's because it's most strongly associated with an initiation ceremony, a circumcision ceremony, which is called uh, uh, an umgidi, um, which is still practiced a lot, and it's quite controversial in some ways now. But people debated about who had the right to sing it, what it meant, who Sama Gwaza was, what the history of it was. It led to these whole kind of like storytelling, like it ignited the um, people's desire to communicate about who they were.
0: So you lived and traveled around South Africa with these songs and these musicians for a whole year?
2: For an entire year, yeah, watch this This method of kind of sharing them with people. One response has been to team up with a a record label um, to uh, reinterpret and remix some of this history and artists.
0: And is that the project called the Beating Heart Project?
2: That's the one, yeah. These, um, Beating Heart is a, a record label based in London.
0: So recently, Beating Heart released an album. Tell me what, what's on the album and how we should receive it.
2: There's two parts to the album. There's the uh, Malawi originals recorded by Hugh Tracy in the 1950s, the the field recordings, and the remixes, um, 21 remixes done by uh, international and Malawian artists. So they exist side by side. And the international artists, many based in London, from the sort of electronic dubstep house scene, have responded very, very strongly to these original recordings.
0: So give me an example of an original piece on the album and also a remixed piece by one of these modern groups.
2: So let me play for you here. This this is a, a, a song recorded by Hugh Tracy uh, in Malawi um, in the 1950s, 1957. It roughly translates from Chua as money is the devil. I <laughs> do Uh, So the musician is Betty Kamanga, um, recorded in 1957, playing the bangwe, um, which is a raft zither, um, a stringed instrument that's that's played by hand, and he's obviously singing um, at the same time. Rhythmically very complex, very warm, So it sounds so warm. Uh, And the topic, he's singing about the the problems of money, what happens when you leave your community and go and work on on the mines in Johannesburg. There was huge uh, rural to urban migration at this time. So let me play for you now the remix that was done of Money is the Devil. This was remixed by Rudimental, a London based, uh, very successful, very, very well known house electronic uh, 15 piece group.
0: London dance audiences responding to this.
2: It's, it's gone down really strongly at festivals. Uh, people have really gone for the, the sound. And I say the story behind it because um, Beed in Heart is trying to work by using this sort of international profile of artists and the electronic house scene to inv- help invest back in um, local community projects. All of the artists on Beed Heart Malawi work for nothing. It's a non-profit label and the proceeds are investing back in uh, local communities in Malawi. So in this case, with Malawi, Beating Heart is working very closely with the Garden to Mouth program, which does sustainable nutrition programs in schools in Malawi.
0: Do you worry that even in these days, in spite of the excitement and the chance to release it to a wider audience, people outside of Africa are still appropriating that music for their own excitement and musical purposes?
2: Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very um, pressing concern and, and question to sample the rest of the world, to, to feather your nest, is, is a neo-colonial pursuit. What's exciting, I think what's exciting about something like a Beating Heart project is the attempt to be uh, collaborative, to, to work with the, the international music industry, but closely with anthropologists, local communities, and kind of get that conversation and that collaboration right. And the collaboration is the most important thing. You know, it's uh, the, the equality of the exchange, and it's very, very difficult to achieve that. That's the challenge and the exciting challenge.
0: Noel, this has been wonderful. Thank you for sharing your experiences and music with me today on With Good Reason.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your interest. And uh, let me just play one more, one more song. Uh, this is Ndamutemba Nyanja, uh, a kalimba, an mbira. You know, be, people call it a thumb piano, but it's an mbira. This was recorded by Hugh Tracy in Malawi, again in the mid-1950s. It's a cyclical form, so you get repeating cycles. But within that repeating cycle, you get stunning, infinite variety. And the moment you hear and experience the music fully, it moves from hearing a, a loop... Into like a spiral, moving through time, so you never hear the same thing again.
4: Nam Temba Nyanga, Nam Temba Futi, Nyanga, I ne Nam Temba Nam Temba Nyanga, Nam Temba Futi, Nyanga, Nam Temba
0: Noel Lobley is a professor of music at the University of Virginia. Coming up next, Hip-Hop Diplomacy. Ever since Louis Armstrong serenaded Egyptians on the banks of the Nile, the U.S. government has seen African American music as a key tool of diplomacy. Now, a State Department program is sending hip-hop artists to conflict zones to build partnerships with local musicians. But bringing American music to conflict zones isn't always easy. Arthur Romano is a professor of conflict resolution at George Mason University. He helps prepare today's hip-hop ambassadors for their state-sponsored trips around the world. Arthur, you lived in India for a while right after college and began to read Gandhi's writings. What did you read that really struck you to the core?
1: The little bit I knew about Gandhi was about his large-scale resistance. But reading Gandhi, I really saw that a lot of the work was addressing issues at a local level and oftentimes in rural places as well as in the cities, doing sanitation projects and rethinking what schools could be like so that they could integrate nonviolence into their education, reimagining policing. All of that made sense to me immediately in terms of its potential impact
0: When you think of Gandhi and Martin Luther King and conflict resolution, it's not so much sitting down in dialogue between oppressors and the oppressed, it's more Gandhi and Martin Luther King finding ways forward to achieve their ultimate political ends, right?
1: It's both. So in those circumstances where people sometimes don't have a seat at the table and ability to influence policy, how are you going to have a meaningful conversation? When people come together like that uh, to build a social movement, uh, it brings issues that are hidden for the larger population to the surface, and the power dynamics can start to shift. At some point, dialogue, negotiation, mediation, those kinds of things become possible. That's one of the pieces where I think music is, is powerful.
0: You most recently have been working with the State Department, teaching peace practices to young hip-hop artists and musicians. Tell me more about that program.
1: Sure. That program's called Next Level. They go to various countries, oftentimes conflict-affected countries, with a group of hip-hop artists and reach out to a group of artists and support them in producing music. Uh, I was speaking recently to a hip-hop artist and spoken word artist, G. Yamazawa. He's Asian-American and explores issues of identity, race, class and his experiences growing up in the south. smokes osmosis. I never knew I was a cuz in school I only learned about the romans. What stands us for the grandmas who don't understand what it's like to hear country grammar mix. I also had a chance to speak with Kane Smigo, one of the next level artists that went to Zimbabwe. Kane explores a variety of issues in his work, issues of immigration, issues of uh whiteness in the united states the
4: living living in increments the and then it was the irish came along and the germans looked down to them said they couldn't be there that's when the italians come now the irish all of a sudden no feel like such embarrassments. they started to point the finger like italians ain't americans and there again we see
1: another change when the... there you get a sense of his the directness to get people to think about it a little bit differently music plays an important role in social movements Uh, We see that right now. There's a number of hip-hop artists who have been engaging with issues of racial justice in the United States. Kendrick Lamar's performance, of course, at the Grammys brought up issues and really exemplified issues of the history of racial segregation and violence in the United States that generated a lot of conversation. There's been the work of Tef Poe in St. Louis, where he's really, um, in many ways, educated people nationally about the context that people are living in, uh, both in St. Louis and Ferguson, and Cass from St. Louis, uh, from Sauce Records, I have a track here, that really talks about the impacts of police violence in his neighborhood, and that deep sense of loss that family members and friends and people in the community feel when... Ah, uh, when they lose someone in and ah police stops. shooting. him.
2: Wo't y'all let us breathe through? Or do we get stopped cause we cool. The traffic stopped. Do I move? What happened to freeze for you? shoot? What happened to freeze for
1: you? shoot? Yeah. Six shots another black man did, and they said why he yelled attacked their black. Musicians man. have always moved movements, right? Even if you're in ah in a large crowd and you're and you're part of a march, a samba band or a a marching band comes in. It literally moves the crowd, right? Right. So music has that element of internal movement and external movement. Uh, And so it's deeply embedded in, in, in social movements where people are trying to oftentimes educate, right, and engage larger numbers of people around an issue and basically ask the question, how do we do this different and how can we do this together?
0: What about hip hop music in particular? What sort of power do you think that format has?
1: Well, hip hop music in the United States really rose as a as a critique, right, both to capitalism and economic exploitation that was happening, and to racism. I mean, if we think about the early history of hip hop in the Bronx, we're talking about a community that was dealing with extreme poverty that was carved up by highways. That experience that folks were living through and the resilience and creative response that that people had was a big part of what gave birth to hip hop and inspired artists and others all over the world.
0: And therefore, how is it helpful to use hip hop artists from America in conflict areas across the world? What is the power that they bring and the opportunity that they bring for engagement there?
1: I think it's complicated, right? That's a mixed history, right, and it puts artists in a complicated place. While people may be relating to hip-hop as a music of resistance abroad, they can also relate to it as a music of of the West or a music of the privileged as a sort of imperial kind of music form. And that's something that in some conversations with artists um, that they've raised as an issue. This is one of the things that we talk about in the workshops before they go. And I think in some ways just having that honest conversation itself is a big part of the work. Artists are in learning mode, and I think that that can be really effective and and helpful, learning about how people understand them, understand these art forms, and then how do they leverage the power of music, of community, of collaboration, of creativity, to then um, push forward social change in the ways that they're hoping for. I think that's a natural process for them oftentimes.
0: Arthur Romano, thank you for sharing your insights into this on With Good Reason.
1: It was a pleasure to be here, thank you.
0: Arthur Romano is an assistant professor at the School for Conflict Resolution and Analysis at George Mason University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. And by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Elliot Majerczyk, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Ray Lenz and Todd Washburn of WHRV. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for
4: listening.